Well, good morning. I was listening uh, to a guy on the radio this week talk about the uh, <clears throat> the popularity of holidays. And uh, the most popular holiday, of course, you might guess is Christmas. Uh, the second most popular holiday is Mother's Day. Uh, the sixth most popular holiday is Halloween. Uh, the 16th most popular holiday is Arbor Day. Uh, and the 20th most popular holiday is Father's Day. So <laughs> you got Jesus, your mom, ghosts, trees, dads. <laughs> kind of in that order. Uh, all that to say, uh, forgot to announce that the, uh, there's some ladies slaving away in the kitchen right now uh, for Father's Day, uh, barbecuing, uh, whatever they're barbecuing. So there'll be food afterwards today. So uh, feel free uh, to stick around. We would love uh, for you to do that. Um, we're finishing First Peter today. Uh, so we've been in First Peter uh, for a while now. And uh, we're, we're coming to the end. And Peter... Uh, has encouraged us uh, from the onset of this letter um, about living as Christians in a world that uh, is increasingly hostile to Christianity, right? Uh, increasingly hostile, hostile to the message of the gospel. Uh, and we've talked about um, politics. We've talked about uh, marriage relationships. We've talked about work relationships. We've talked about uh, suffering that comes just as a result of living in a fallen world, things like death and disease that are out of our control. We've talked about persecution, suffering that we kind of bring on ourselves because we, we won't tone down our, our talk of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And, and all throughout the letter, Peter uh, has continued to encourage us to remember who Christ is, remember what Christ has done for us, uh, and to stand firm in that. And he's finishing his letter today uh, with a call to stand firm uh, for the Christian living in a world, again, that's growing increasingly hostile to the idea of Christianity, to the message of the gospel. And so we're picking up in chapter 5, starting in verse 8. And he says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so these first couple of verses in our passage today uh, is a call from Peter to remind us to resist the devil. And, and he starts off by saying, be sober-minded and be watchful. What does he mean by being sober-minded? Well, this isn't the first time in Peter's letter that he's talked about sober-mindedness. In uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. And so if we take our cues from what Peter wrote at the beginning of his letter about being sober-minded, we would see that being sober-minded has to do with setting your hope fully on the grace, as he calls it, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that we would fix our eyes firmly on Christ, that we would look to Christ uh, as we live in this world. 
being sober-minded is, is a call even to holiness, a call to purity, a call to obedience to Christ. Right, the Great Commission, uh, Jesus commanded his disciples to teach the world all that he has commanded, uh, to teach them to obey everything. And this is part of being sober-minded, is looking to Christ and living as obedient children of Christ. He says, be watchful. In other words, pay attention. Right, just the fact that he reminds us that we have an adversary, that our adversary is the devil, he's saying, pay attention to that. Right? It, it, it's not, it doesn't work to go through this Christian life not being mindful that we do have an adversary. Now, it's worth mentioning that our adversaries, what, what comes to your mind when you hear that word adversary? Do you think of a person? Do, do you think of somebody on the other side of the political aisle? Do you think about um, people that live in the big town next to us, maybe, as, as your adversaries? Who do you think of when you think of your adversaries? The Bible is clear that our adversaries are not, our enemies are not people who are different than us. Right? We, we have spent a lot of time in the last couple of years just in the, the political landscape of where things are, looking to people who think differently from us and looking at them as if they are our enemies because they hold a different worldview. The Bible would tell us that it's, it's not people that hold a different worldview that are our enemies. We have an enemy that we can't necessarily see. And our battle is not against people that think differently than us. We engage in a battle that we can't necessarily see either. But we have an adversary, the devil. And the devil has one job. You ever, you ever hear those jokes, like somebody messes something up and they say, like, you had one job? right? The devil has one job. And his job is to prowl around, Peter tells us, like a roaring lion. This is a sobering picture. Right? If you were on African safari and you saw a lion out in the wild, would you, would you go up and pet it? Probably not, because lions are fierce. Right? If you saw a lion out in the wild, you'd probably take cover, because lions kill. Right? That's what they do. That's why they're called the king of the jungle. And so Peter likens our adversary, the devil, like a lion that's prowling around. He's roaring, and he's seeking someone to devour. Right? That, that's the job of the devil. That's the one job that the devil has, is to seek out you and me and anyone else, just like a roaring, prowling lion, and to do whatever it takes to devour us. And so Peter's call to be sober-minded and to be watchful should be something that, that causes us to pay attention because the context of this sober-mindedness and the context of this watchfulness is, is the context that we have an adversary who's trying to hunt us down and trying to kill us, right? So that's bad news. There's some good news coming here in a moment, but that, that's the bad news, right? Uh, that's the bad news, the call to pay attention. But Peter doesn't stop there with this call to pay attention. He tells us in verse 9 to resist him. And what's, what's good about this call to resist him is that, that what's implicit in this call to resist him is that we have some ability to resist the devil. Now, what Peter is not talking about here when he talks about resisting our adversary is he's not talking about mustering up enough willpower. He's not talking about mustering up enough strength. He's not saying be strong in your own strength. He's not saying man up or anything like that. But he says, resist him firm in your faith. In other words, there's only one way to resist this roaring, prowling lion, our adversary, the devil, and it's to be firm in our faith. 
Right? The way to resist the devil is not to take him on right, head on, like mano y mano. That's not what Peter's saying. He's saying stay firm in your faith as you resist the devil, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, like the devil's coming for everybody. Right? Your struggle to maintain your, your faith, your struggle uh, in your sin every day is not a struggle that's unique to you. It's not a struggle that's unique to me. There may be some uniqueness in my struggle compared to your struggle, but, but you have the same adversary that I do. And he's coming after us. And the only way that we can resist the wiles of our adversary is to remain firm in our faith and remembering that Christians all over the world, the brotherhood, he calls it, or the sisterhood, the family of faith, all throughout the world is experiencing the same kind of adversarial relationship with our enemy. You might remember from our time in James, James chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, James writes this, he says, Submit yourselves to God, therefore, and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James's call is to submit to God. Our, our resisting of the devil is connected to our submission to God. And as we submit to God, James tells us, as we draw near to God, the devil will flee, our adversary will flee from us as God draws near to us. And so we have these struggles that, that sin comes into our life daily and tempts us to stray from the will of God. Persecution comes into our lives as Christians as we proclaim the gospel to a world that's increasingly hostile to it. And the way that we resist temptations, the way that we, we suffer well under persecution is by drawing near to God, submitting ourselves to God and to his will. And as we submit to him, he draws near to us, and as he draws near to us, our enemy draws farther and farther away from us. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 would put it this way. He would say, finally be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may also be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. All right, so what we see from Peter, what we see from James, what we see from Paul is not a call to fight. Not, not a call to take on the roaring lion head on, but, but a call to run to Christ, a call to submit to Christ, a call to take up the armor that Christ provides for us, to draw near to God so that our enemy will draw away from us. And as we remember, as we know, as we understand that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by our family of faith throughout the whole world, as we are reminded that suffering is not unique to the individual, we all suffer, we all undergo persecution, that in the midst of those things, 
the call is to draw near to God. It's often easy for us to think when things don't go our way that God is not near us. It's easy for us to think when things are difficult that God, God is way over there or that God doesn't understand. But, but the Bible would tell us for the Christian that God is near to us even in the midst of our suffering. You might remember from a few weeks back that Peter talked about when we suffer according to the will of God, right? Two, two words or a word and a phrase that we don't often put together, suffering and according to the will of God. But Peter talks about the, that we suffer as Christians according to the will of God. And that's not to say that God is mean and that he wants us to go through difficult things, but it is to say that because we believe that God controls everything, that God rules everything, that God sees everything, that God hears everything, that God knows everything, that God controls everything everywhere all of the time, then our suffering that we undergo would be part of that. More on that in a minute as Peter's going to get into that. But Peter, Paul, and James all are saying, submit to God, draw near to God, stand firm in the strength that God provides for you in your suffering. Because this enemy that we have is a serious enemy. He's a formidable opponent. And we don't have it in us. I don't have it in me to take on the adversary. I don't. And you don't either. But because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, he's already taken on our adversary, and he's already secured a victory that you and I cannot secure. He's already done for us what we could and would never do for ourselves. He conquered death. He defeated the enemy. And because, again, we believe that he knows everything, controls everything, is over everything, everywhere, all of the time, He's got, he's got this roaring lion on his leash. Remember the Looney Tunes cartoon, at least from when I was a kid? Remember Foghorn Leghorn and the dog? Remember the dog's name? The Foghorn Leghorn would always antagonize this dog, right? And the dog was always on a chain. The dog would chase after him. He'd get to the end of his chain, right? And he'd, and he'd be jerked back, right? J Jesus has the devil on a chain. And he's already defeated him. But Peter goes on to say in verse 10, he says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. After you have suffered for a little while, so again, our suffering, our persecution is, is under the watchful eye of God. Right? He, he's not blind to our suffering, and, and even some, may, maybe all of it, is according to his will, Peter tells us. According to his sovereign plan, his good plan for your life and for my life. He says, after you have suffered a little while. Now, we, we think of our time on this earth as a long time, right? 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, how, however long you're blessed to have in this world, right? It, it's a long time to us, is it not? But Peter calls our time in this world a little while. When we think about eternity, for, forever backwards from this point in time and forever forwards from this point in time, eternity, we can't even fathom eternity, right? We're, we're finite beings and we can't grasp the infinite. But, but we can know that because we can't grasp what's infinite, 
that our time on this earth, as long as it may be in the scope of eternity, it's just a little while. It's just a little while. And Peter says, after we've suffered for a little while, in other words, this suffering is kind of a foregone conclusion that it's just part of our life. It's part of our life uh, just being humans on the earth. It's part of our life as Christians as we proclaim the message of Christ to undergo persecution. And after we have suffered and been persecuted for a little while, he tells us the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so as we think about grace, Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. Grace, by its definition, is something that we can't earn and something that we don't deserve. In fact, we deserve the opposite of grace. Have you ever been treated so graciously by somebody in a way that you don't deserve that has just absolutely floored you at at how gracious a person can be? Peter reminds us that that our God, he's the God of all grace. He's the place where grace begins. He's the place where grace ends. He's the place where grace is fulfilled in its most fullest sense. Right? We can be gracious as human beings because the God who created us is gracious, but, but we don't fully embody grace. Our God fully embodies grace, the full embodiment of what grace is. So after we've suffered a little while, the the God who shows us unmerited favor, the God who does things for us that we can't earn and that we don't deserve, that God, Peter reminds us, has called you, Christian, to his eternal glory in Christ. He's called us heavenward. He's called us into relationship with him. Peter would say in his next epistle, he would remind us that we were once in darkness and that this God of all grace has called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. He reminds us those who never belonged to God now belong to God because he's called us to him. He's called us into relationship with him. He's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. And something that comes from being called to the eternal glory in Christ is that he'll restore us. In other words, he'll make all of the wrong things right one day. I don't know if you're like me, I I read a lot of news every day. Usually I wake up and I I read some news headlines, I go to bed, that's how I wind down at night is reading some news headlines. There's a lot of bad things that happen in the world. The world's messed up. The world is broken. And every day, just by reading headlines, I, I realize more and more that the world is it's just flat out broke. It's flat out broke beyond any hope of repair apart from Christ. And Peter reminds us that there's going to come a day when all of those wrong things, all of those bad things, all of the wrong things are going to be made right. That's the hope of the Christian. If we don't have that hope, what we've signed up for is a sham. If we don't have the hope that Christ is going to redeem all things, what, what, what is Christianity without the hope of redemption? It, it, at that point, it becomes an empty religion if we don't have the hope of redemption. And so the God who sees everything, who knows everything, who controls everything, the God who is the full embodiment of grace, unmerited favor, 
that God in light of the suffering that we experience in the time that we have on this earth, just that, that little while in the scope of eternity, there's going to come a day where that God, the God of all grace, will show us fully what grace is by restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing those who call themselves Christian. Those who have submitted their lives to Christ. Those who have come under the authority of God. Those who draw near to Him in their battle with their adversary. And we can, we can kind of relate to this. I think I talked about this a few weeks back. right? We, we put up with, with things often, suffering in our lives as a means to an end. Right? We, we work jobs that we don't like sometimes as a means to an end because they put food on the table. They provide for our retirement, right? those kinds of things. So we, we suffer. We can put up with things. We, we put up sometimes with people that we don't like because it's a means to an end. Right? Peter is reminding us that, that the means of Christian suffering leads to an end of Christ redeeming and restoring all of the wrong things that have happened to us. Christ redeeming us. Again, without that hope, what, it, what is our faith? Now, Peter, Peter knows something about this. I don't know if you've ever looked at Peter's life throughout the gospel accounts. Peter was, like, he, he was not real impressive in the gospel accounts. Peter was kind of a doofus. Peter was a guy that would speak often before he would think. Peter was a guy that would do dumb things. And this is just who Peter was. And there came a moment in Luke chapter 22 where Jesus is speaking to Peter and he says, Behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Right? What, what does that mean when Jesus himself says that to you, that Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat? This is, this is the adversary prowling around like a roaring lion and Jesus telling Peter like he's coming for you. But Jesus said to Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And if you know the story, the story goes on that, that Peter denied knowing Christ after Christ was arrested and before he was nailed to the cross. Three times they asked Peter, aren't you one of his followers? Aren't you with him? And three times Peter's like, I don't know the guy. I don't know the guy. And so Jesus warned him. So when Peter's telling us, like, pay attention to your adversary, be watchful, be sober-minded, Peter has some personal experience that's going into what he's writing here. Because Peter wasn't sober-minded and Peter wasn't watchful. And as a result, he was sifted. He was sifted like wheat because he didn't heed the warning of Jesus. But Peter also, not only did he experience being sifted like wheat, Peter also experienced this kind of redemption as well. In John chapter 21, we're not going to read the whole chapter. You don't, you don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you the story. Um, after Jesus had died, Peter and company were out fishing. They were fishermen, right? And they were out fishing. Yeah, they're not having any luck this particular day. Right? The fish just weren't, they weren't doing their thing. They weren't coming into the nets. And they're out in, the, out in the water, and somebody calls to him from the shore and says, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. 
And normally that would have been just a ridiculous thing for somebody to do, but since they'd gone this time and, and just the fish weren't, weren't coming, what do we have to lose? Let's give it a try. And so they threw their net on the other side of the boat, and all of a sudden the net was so full that they could barely lift it into the boat. And the Bible tells us in John 21 that Peter recognized almost immediately that that person from the shore that said, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat, he recognized that was Jesus. And Peter, being the guy that he is, what do you think he did? He strips off his clothes and he dives into the water. And he swims to the shore because he's so excited that Jesus was there. That's the kind of guy Peter is. And he got there and Jesus had a fire going. And he was cooking some fish on the fire and invited Peter to come in and, and have a meal with him. And as we pick it up towards the end of the chapter, it says that when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, know that I love you. And he said, Jesus said to Peter, feed my lambs. And Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. If you love me, follow me. So Peter experiences in this moment a kind of redemption. So Peter first experienced the tactics of the adversary, the tactics of the enemy, and the enemy got the best of him. But that wasn't the end of Peter's story. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't look at Peter and he doesn't look at us and say, forget about you if you can't do what I say. The God of all grace restored Peter. The God of unmerited favor, the God of doing things that we don't deserve and that we cannot earn did something for Peter that Peter did not deserve. If you had a friend that denied even knowing you, would you be friends with that person anymore? Probably not. I probably wouldn't either. Peter denied knowing Jesus, yet Jesus, in his graciousness, gently restored Peter. If it were me, if I were Jesus, when Peter got to the beach, I'd say, Peter, we need to talk about what happened back there. That would be me. Peter, what are we going to do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? That's what I would say. I would say, Peter, you, you hurt my feelings. You wounded me when you deny it. How could you do that? That's the conversation I would have. But the conversation that Jesus had with Peter is just simply asking, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, okay, feed my sheep. And here's Peter years later writing this letter, writing this epistle, feeding the sheep that Jesus told him to feed. Peter experiencing the redemptive graciousness of the God of all grace. Peter experiencing restoration, confirmation, strength. Peter being established as an apostle. 
So Peter's writing these words, not because they sound good, not because somebody taught them to him, but because Peter experienced this very thing that he's telling us about. And in light of that, Peter says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In other words, may the God of grace continue to be the God of grace. May the God who sees everything, knows everything, controls everything, everywhere, all the time, continue to do that forever and ever. Amen that we all agree to that statement. So we have an adversary, the devil. He has one job to devour us. Other places in scripture it says that he is out to seek and to kill and to destroy. That's his job. So we ought to pay attention to that. But in our paying attention to it, the thing that we do is that we, we draw near to God. We draw near to God, trusting that as we draw near to God, that our adversary doesn't want to be in that presence and he'll flee. And then Peter concludes his letter with this call yet again to stand firm. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon is likewise chosen, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. So this guy's Silvanus. It's likely Silas. Remember Paul and Silas? This is, this is likely just another name for Silas. Now, Paul would often have his letters dictated. His eyesight was poor, and so he would often dictate letters that somebody else would write. But it's likely that, that Silvanus was the guy that delivered the letter, not necessarily that dictated it. Delivered this letter. Peter regards him as a faithful brother. He said he's, he's written to us briefly, right? His, his letter is not a long letter. He's written to us briefly. But his purpose in writing is to exhort and to declare that this is the true grace of God. Now, what is, it that is, what is this that is the true grace of God? We have to look at the entirety of the letter. Peter's writing about suffering. Peter's writing about persecution. Peter's writing about injustice. And the Christian living in a world that contains all of those things that experiences injustice, the Christian who experiences suffering, the Christian who experiences persecution. And he's saying, all of that that I just wrote about, that's the grace of God. Again, we think in our difficulties that God is not near to us, but Peter is reminding us that it's in our difficulties maybe that God is most near to us. It's in our difficulties as we look to Christ that we see grace for what it is, that we experience his graciousness for what it is. I've said this before, but if things are always easy, if the easy button were real, how would we know the grace of God? Things always went our way. Things were always easy. If we never had any difficulties, how would we know the grace of God? I can tell you that we wouldn't know the grace of God. And so it's in these difficulties that cause us to look to him that we see God's grace more clearly than without those things in our life. And so it's through our hardships that God is working to get our attention. And so the question for you is, does he have your attention in the midst of your hardships, in the midst of your difficulties? Does he have your attention? 
Because if he has your attention, then you can't not but see his grace in the midst of whatever your difficulties are. So Peter's purpose is to exhort and to declare that the God of all grace, who has called us to him for eternity, is there for us in the midst of our difficulty. That's, that's true grace. That's the true grace that Peter is writing about. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. He says that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I would ask you as you hear those verses read, what, what do you contribute to that? Nothing. You don't contribute anything to that except the mess that required Jesus to do what he did. That's what you and I contribute. God loved us with, with a great love, so great a love that when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were being devoured by the roaring lion, when we were dead in our trespasses, that he, he made us alive. Now, I'm not aware of any stories that exist about somebody who survived being devoured by a lion. Maybe it's happened. I don't know. People sometimes survive those kinds of things. But it's kind of a certainty when a lion comes at you, you're, you're probably going to die, right? You're probably going to die. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that even in our dead state, when the lion had fully devoured us, when there was no hope that we were going to survive the attack, that God in Christ made us alive, and he did so by an act of his grace, by something that we don't deserve and that we can't earn, unmerited favor. And not only that, not only did he make us alive to kind of restore us to wholeness, but we're told that in the coming ages, that it's God's will for the Christian that he would show his immeasurable riches. We can measure a lot of things today, but we can't measure the richness of Christ. And, and he's going to spend eternity showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. And then the clincher, Paul says that you've been saved by grace through faith. Not of your own doing, not, not that you contributed anything to that except for the problem. And this was God's plan that salvation worked this way so that we can't brag about it, so that I can't say, yeah, I contributed a little bit to what God has done. God's sure lucky to have me on his team. No. We've been saved by grace. And we are his workmanship. We're not our own workmanship, right? I'm not who I am today, and you're not who you are today because we've worked really hard to be good people. We, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And anything that we do that's good, anything that we do that's noble, anything that we do that's noteworthy, Paul tells us that these are good works that God prepared for you and me beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, we don't, we don't get to brag about this. 
That's the true grace of God. Peter finishes up in verse 13. It says that she who is at Babylon, which is, which is uh, most likely a reference to the church at Rome. So the church at Rome, who is likewise chosen, he says, which, which is to say who is likewise suffering just like you are, sends you their greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Probably Paul's son in the faith. We, we don't know that Paul had children, but this is probably his son in the faith. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. And, and, and this is not this is something they did back then, right? There's no weird correlation today where, where we have to give each other the kiss of love. But the point is that, that we would have affection towards one another, that we would have affection toward our fellow Christians who are suffering the same fight that I'm suffering. As we live in a, in a world, again, that's more and more hostile towards the message that we bring, that should cause us all the more to show affection to one another that we would show affection to one another as we greet one another. And then Peter ends his letter by saying, peace to all who are in Christ. Now this is a big statement because of what he's been writing about. Remember, he's been writing about suffering and persecution and injustice and difficulty. And he ends his letter by saying, peace to all who are in Christ. In other words, what he's reminding us of is that there, there's only one way to have peace in a world that's becoming increasingly peaceless. And that's to be in Christ. There's more and more hostility in the world every day. Read, read the headlines. There, there's hostility all over the world. There's hostility in America. And there's no sign that that hostility is decreasing. As a matter of fact, the trajectory of it is not good. And Peter reminds us in his closing remarks that the only way that, that you and I can experience true peace is to be in Christ. There's no true peace apart from Christ. We might be, able, might be able to get along a little bit apart from Christ, but we can't know peace apart from Christ. So as we consider Peter's letter, as we consider his first epistle, as we consider suffering, as we consider injustice, as we consider persecution, as we consider the, the difficulty that we suffer in this Christian life just for a little while as it compares to eternity, that we would be exhorted and encouraged to look to Christ. And that's going to be uh, my prayer for us today, myself included. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you care for us. Thank you that peace can be found in you. Lord, thank you that we can look to you in the midst of uh, the hardships of life, our sufferings and our persecutions and our difficulties. Thank you that you protect us from the schemes of the enemy, that you protect us from the roaring lions seeking to devour us. God, help us to be people that draw near to you. Help us to be people that submit to you, that trust in you, that hope in you. Help us to be people that believe with everything that we've got that redemption is real and that you will affect redemption, that one day all of the wrong things will be made right. God, help us to be people that, that look to eternity before we look to the here and now. Help us to be people that, that proclaim your goodness, that proclaim the truthfulness of the gospel in the world regardless of how hostile it might be. And more than those things, Father, we pray that uh, that through the things that we do as a church, that you would bring people to know you. God, that we would be uh, a church known for helping bring people to know Christ. 
Lord, only you can do that, and we need your help in it, and we ask that you would help us in that. In Jesus' name, amen.